This story for me was uncovering a big superhero secret. Bob Kane is the man who has been credited on Batman for most of Batman's history. When you open a comic book, there it says created by Bob Kane. When you see the movies, it says created by Bob Kane. Correcting that is something that terrified everybody, I think, for decades. Bill Finger was the dominant creative force of Batman, Robin, the Joker, Catwoman, the Riddler, the Penguin, the Scarecrow, Commissioner Gordon, Bruce Wayne and Dick Grayson, and Gotham City. I know Bob's trying to take credit for everything. Everything you would think is good, that's Bill. So how could this not have been so well known? I was a ghost. I really was. Bob Kane did not want Bill Finger's story told and took tremendous offense at. Bill was Batman's secret identity. It became a crusade, getting Bill's name on Batman. Superheroes are not doing this to get paid or praised. They are doing something for the greater good, then they disappear into the night. Without Bill, there'd be no Batman. So what happened to Bill Finger? Hey everybody, this is Mark Tiberius Lemke, Chicago Blackhawks fan. This podcast is part of the Batman Universe Podcast Network, and you can help support Batman Universe by heading to patreon.com slash Batman Universe and take the survey at surveymonkey.com slash r slash feedback. Uh, and also make sure to go over to the BatmanUniverse.net, Facebook.com slash Batman Universe, Twitter handles at Batman Universe. You can email the show at batfanswithoutpants at gmail.com. And you can follow the show on Twitter. And the show's Twitter handle is at BatFansPodcast. How's that, Tim? Am I in the bizarre world right now? You did the opposite of doing the <laughs> closeout of the show at the beginning. Mm-hmm. I'm a little confused right now. <laughs> well, I figure put everything up front so that you know we don't have to say that whole thing at the end. I mean, we'll, we'll still say it all that at the end. but yeah, Just know. get it out there twice, I guess. <laughs> I was yeah. going to say, are we done with the show already? Is that it? <laughs> Just a one-minute yeah, episode. I mean, I guess this is the 30, 45-second show that we're going we're gonna to be oh, doing. See you next time, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you think about it, we already did a show talking about uh, baseball. Yeah. I mean, maybe we should do a baseball show. Yeah, I know sometimes we usually start off the show with some baseball discussions, but we just started talking about it <laughs> before yeah, we recorded. I mean, so. uh, um, like... The Oakland A's, of course, uh, the bottom of the division, fifth place, um, 13, uh, not, not 13, thankfully. Uh, what was it, Tim? Like uh, 19 and 24? Uh, 23, I think it was. 19 and 23? Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we just established that I'm officially Dane's Oakland A's therapist now. Just, every time we record, whether it's before we start recording or during the show, I'm here to help Dane get his frustrations and vent out the last place Oakland well, is. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have been so bad if they won the World Series. That does... Last year or the year before. That does ease the pain when you have a losing season, yes. <laughs> you just look back yeah, at a, the last year or the two years ago, something like that. That's why I don't but know But that how, was in 1990, right? No, 89. 89 was the 89, last one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, that's why I'm not... Uh, I'm not really sure how, you know, Chicago Cubs fans can go 108 years without um, winning a World Series. Why, it was such a monumental occasion. I saw they had 5 million <laughs> people at their parade. <laughs> <laughs> well deserved. Too. Oh, yes. Well, but it uh, seems like they're having a World Series hangover this season because they're no. not playing too good. I think they're just, they might be at 500 or two games under 500. 
What uh, division are they in? NL Central. Yeah, that's what I figured. NL Central. Let's check the standings for that one. Yeah, so I know Mark can't be too happy yeah, right the... <laughs> with the, how they're playing. Yeah, but they're they're in the middle of the standings. I mean, can't really complain. Look at the Pirates, man. 18 and 24. Yeah, they're not having a good what season. To them? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Brewers. They're at first. The Brewers. Are, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they're two games ahead of uh, the Cardinals. Yeah, that division isn't that great. So even though if there are under 500, I don't think they're like so far behind in the division where they can't a team can't catch up right now. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean the Reds they're they're kind of quiet and the Cardinals have been quiet recently these past couple of seasons. Um Brewers kind of a non-factor. The the only the only competition I'd say they they'd have is the 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 Pirates, but apparently not. But, not this year anyway. <laughs> Yeah, what happened to the Pirates? Yeah, just their window's closing for, you know, the good team that they have. And they still have some of those players, but I think mainly since yeah. their pitching hasn't been that great. Uh, I see. Well, it's it's only the beginning of the year, so. Yeah, I mean, we're just I mean, beginning of the yeah, season. We're just a quarter of the way through, so a long way to go. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's some more baseball talk. <laughs> just to squeeze a little bit more in there. <laughs> Uh, let's do our Dark Knight Rises minute by minute commentary. Um, we're going from minute eighty three to eighty four. We're almost at ninety minutes. We're almost at uh, an hour and a half into this. No, can you believe it? <laughs> um, yeah, no, we almost did ninety of these. Um, so yeah, just, just grab uh, just grab your HD DVD, grab your laser disc, grab your um, projector, grab your VHS tape, grab your blockbuster rental. <laughs> Grab your um, uh, Netflix DVD uh, rental. Your physical media. Just cue it to the, yeah, your physical media. And cue it to the 83rd minute, and I'm going to give the countdown. So, Tim, are you ready? You know what? I always say I'm ready to go. Let's do it. But right now, I'm actually not ready because I had it a minute earlier at <laughs> an hour and 22 minutes. So, I'm trying to get my way to uh, the 83rd an minute. Hour and <laughs> Yeah, so I'm sorry, Nate. Unfortunately, I am not ready, but I will be ready in about five more seconds. So, <laughs> okay, I am there now. So you can right. go ahead and give the countdown. Okay, Tim, are you ready? Yes, Dane, I am all set. Good. Three, two, one. Okay, wait. Let me. Do that. Three, two, one. Hit play. Okay. And we're still at. Bruce in the oh he just turned on the TV so yeah I don't know if we're going to be transitioning from out of the cell and back to the Gotham yes we are there's Bane leading Talia and Lucius and all the police going in underground which I think we talked about on a previous episode how it causes some controversy with the movie and how they can send that many police officers <laughs> down there but well, I guess they need it all. Uh, kind of for a situation as you know, big of a threat as Bane, I can definitely see why. So I kind of bought into it. And was it every single one? There was a handful that kind of stayed up. Some of them couldn't get down there, of course, because <laughs> they yeah. dropped the exit before. And so where did they go then? I know hiding out in different houses. I guess like different safe oh, houses. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. 
And that's it. That's that's all for this yeah. episode. <laughs> Not a, I mean, at least we're getting something. Yeah, it wasn't a very eventful one, but progress is being made. Yeah, but um, you know, speaking of movies, uh, why don't you tell everybody about our featured topic for this episode, Tim? Yeah, this one is a topic I've been waiting to talk about with you, Dan, since the, it came out two weeks ago, which is the Batman and Bill documentary. We've seen it. Uh, now it's time for us to talk about it, and we were really excited when this first got announced, and then when the trailer came out. So, yeah, you've heard me talk about it on this podcast plenty of times of you know what a champion I've been for trying to get Bill Finger's uh, name recognized, not only in the credits but just for people in general. I'm not trying to make it like I've done a lot to <laughs> get the name his name out there. I've done what I can, but nothing like what Mark Tyler Nobleman has done. I mean, he's been the real hero and champion of, of this Bill Finger credit movement. So and this documentary kind of focuses on his journey to how that all happened. And man, it was really well done. <laughs> it was so, so good. I was excited going into it. And I knew, of course, of the Bill Finger stories, the, the general, you know, situations of what happened throughout his life but this documentary just shed more light on it and as much as i enjoyed it i gotta say my initial reaction afterwards was like i was just bummed out <laughs> a little bit uh, just what a raw deal he got and the what the finger family had to kind of go through over the course of these years of you know doing what they can to try to get bill more recognition and you know some of the stories that we've heard from the Finger family of you know some of the stuff they had to go through uh, while they were dealing with it. So this it shed more light on a situation I knew wasn't good, and just made it more disappointing that you know definitely for me, but arguably the most recognizable, the greatest fictional character ever created, and so many people do not know the true creator behind it, which is such a sad thing to think about that someone who created this icon that's recognizable to almost everyone out there never got recognition from it sadly as he died uh, way too young and so it's just that's what bummed me out about it it kind of had a happy ending uh, but you know just for the state of bill finger it just just sucks what happened to him so uh, this documentary did a great job of shedding light on things that happened and just you know how it all went down in this even the struggle for Mark Tyler Nobleman to get, you know, it was like a, it was kind of billed as a detective story for him to dig deeper into, you know, Bill Finger's family and what needed to be done to get him recognition. That was a great aspect of it too. So just a lot of great things to it. The story of Mark Tyler Nobleman getting this project off the ground and then just getting, learning more about Bill Finger, uh, his contributions, his struggles, and then later on with his family, like his son, and then his granddaughter Athena had to uh, go through to get this off the ground as far as his recognition and his name getting credited is concerned. So it was just very, very well done. Just even from a documentary standpoint, it was just really well done. Like I said, those two stories that were kind of being told there, and then how some of the stuff with Bill Finger in his uh, early days of working on Batman, and how. Uh, they were telling stories with you know that looked like comic artwork from the golden uh, the golden age of comics, and it was just really cool to see that. And then also too, just how it was directed, and because like I said, it kind of had a bum made you made me bummed out watching it, just how sad Bill Finger's <laughs> stories was. But the way it ended, I mean, it could have ended any better. I was watching, I was kind of I hope it ends the, with you know that 
someone at the theater, whether it's Mark Taylor, no woman, uh, Bill Finger's granddaughter, them at the theater seeing for the first time Bob Kane with Bill Finger, Batman created by, uh, as they watched Batman v Superman. And it, that's how it ended with Mark Tyler Nobleman seeing that for the first time and having a big smile on his face. It was just a great way to end it. It was awesome. So just altogether well-made documentary. So I, I thought it was great, and I'm sure you're in agreement with me, Dane. Yeah, yeah, I am. It was great to, uh, you know, see, see all these pictures of him. Yeah. Because... The only picture I've seen of him is the one uh, with the, the, the baseball yep. cap mm-hmm. on, and to hear his voice, and uh, I I think at the I, I think it was at the end of the movie where uh, it's it's kind of revealed that his he he, he wasn't buried in a um, kind of a anonymous mm-hmm. grave is, is that what you call it yeah he his son got his body and then uh, I guess cremated it and. Uh, he had kind of a sea burial kind of yeah, thing. That was probably one of my favorite parts of the whole documentary yeah. because, yeah, like you said, it was oh, the way he died was just so sad. He just died alone in his apartment with no one there, like no family. And then, like you said, uh, just being buried in an unmarked like, grave field and just, just like a sad yeah. ending to someone who created the greatest character ever. That's Like I said, a lot of time gets me so bummed out. But then when we learned at the end where his son, you know, uh, God had his ashes, put him on the beach, and then he made it in the or he made the symbol, the bat symbol in the sand, poured his ashes in there, and let the water take it away. I thought that was just you know a beautiful way to you know for a son to say goodbye to his dad. And that was another thing about the documentary too that I kind of learned as I watched it is you know how his son kind of you know wanted his name to get recognized too. Like he was one of the first ones to try to uh, get that because he was proud of his dad and the you know the legacy he left was creating batman that was something i never knew where his son fred uh who who was trying to you know in the earlier days of you know i think like maybe during the 60s 70s sometime around there where he was trying to do his part with dc to get his dad recognition but at the end he just kind of figured there's nothing uh can do about it right now so i was glad that they both kind of had uh closure with that well unfortunately I didn't live to see it but I just thought it was a beautiful way to have uh, say goodbye to his father with kind of the way he wanted to with recognizing this creation of Batman I thought that was really really cool yeah and also I didn't re- I, I didn't know that the the, the uh, I mean I knew he wrote a uh, Batman 66 uh, uh, show I mean uh, episode yeah. But I didn't know that that was the only time that d- during his lifetime that he got credit for something uh, Batman related. Yeah, and this is the way uh, that the writer was telling the story. You know how you know Bill Finger was kind of a little timid. Like you, the other writer could tell something was on his mind. He was like, "Come on, Bill, just tell me what's going on." He's like, "You think just for this once I can get top billing on this one?" <laughs> and the guy was like, "Yeah, sure, that's fine." It just. Uh, that's again just showing how much that probably ate at him knowing that Bob Kane was getting all the credit and just how you know there was nothing he really could do about it then and that's probably why he was just so kind of nervous or hesitant to say anything about getting credit even for writing that Batman episode yeah yeah and I mean I guess it's not really a criticism but I, I just wish that we uh, or they went into that um, contract a little more the, the original Batman sure. contract a little more because I'm not I, I came away from the movie not really knowing what I mean did did Bob Kane sign something or was it a handshake kind of thing um, yeah I think there was con- you know what, what 
I think yeah. there was kind of some legal uh, contract that Bob Kane did sign with DC to you know have him be credited as the sole creator. I mean, I'm sure if he would have mentioned Bill Finger <laughs> during that time, he'd be on there too. But uh, we know Bob Kane was especially more so in this documentary, just wanting all the credit and glory for himself. So I think that he yeah. really did sign a kind of like a legal contract that just said that he would be the creator at that time. Yeah, and it's he. Or at least what, what I didn't know uh, is he—he uh, he actually tried to fight for himself a little bit at the at the uh, was it like a New York Comic Con yeah or something mm. yeah like he he actually tried to fight for himself and then he said he he said all these things and then I guess Bob Kane decided to yeah. um, write a like an article or something yeah like I believe like the Batman saying. fan club or something like that yeah. Yeah, that was sad. Yeah. <laughs> and then to know that he, you know, he died, he he died alone and probably, you know, penniless. Yeah, it's just so sad. Yeah, that's that's what makes me so bummed out. Like the yeah. guy who created the most popular superhero out there, just popular characters ever, just died alone, like penniless, like you said, where he should have been getting as much if not more so than what Bob Kane had and yeah I gotta say too this I mean my opinion of Bob Kane already lessened a lot when I started learning more about Bill Finger's story and everything but it it's almost gone now after seeing this documentary I mean I gotta give him credit words too I mean I can't say that uh, Bill Finger could have created Batman all by himself like Bob Kane needed to be there it was his concept Bill Finger just brought in all the, the cool stuff that we know and love about Batman, but the concept was from Bob Kane, so he definitely should be credited as Bat as part of Batman's co-creator. Though I think Bill Finger should probably get top billing on that too. But but man, this really painted Bob Kane in a bad light. This certain interviews that he had in here, like you mentioned, the yeah. one where he wrote that whole statement, but just you know where his mindset creatively was at. All he cared about was the money. He just the creative juices in, in him as an artist was not there as far as just wanting to tell good stories and creating good characters. All he cared about was the money and even Todd McFarlane on the documentary I like where he said that, you know, that's not how most creative people in this field think about like artists, writers, we're here to tell you know, good stories and uh, give our creative visions out there but not think, we'll think about the money afterwards but Bob Kane was like, nope, just about the money first and the one clip that they had of Bob Kane that really you know, showed what what he's all about it was one of the kind of near the end kind of later in Bob Kane's life might have been like the early 90s or maybe when the first Batman movie came out but he was saying how you know Batman's gonna be around long after I'm gone there's gonna be more movies other people working on it but as lo- when I'm in heaven as long as I can you know, still cre- get some of the residuals off the character that'll be fine I mean even then all he cares about was the money aspect of Batman and what that gave him that just uh, <laughs> this rubbed me the wrong way so this did not paint Bob Kane <laughs> in a good light in this documentary and again just shows or makes it disappointing how you know he's the one who got all the credit for all these years and just now barely people are just starting to recognize Bill Finger's name as a creative force for Batman so yeah unfortunately it did not paint Bob Kane <laughs> in, uh, in a good image as far as you know what he is like when it comes to you know, just even in this creative field, as a person, as a businessman, it is how you know the selfish he was. Yeah, and uh, it it made me wonder, like, 
I wonder if they can go back and like say say the Dark Knight, mm. right? And I think it's brought up in the in the movie that um, I'm just wondering if like they can go back and uh, put Bill Finger's name or his credit into that movie. Yeah, that's that's kind of interesting as far as how that would work legally, like to change any previous yeah. movie credits or whatnot. I'm sure there. I'm sure it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, because yeah, this seemed really, really complicated. Like they had to get a copyright lawyer and like all kinds of stuff. Yeah, if I remember right, it was wasn't it Athena Finger's cousin? Like it was someone in the family who was a lawyer. I think I think it was her half sister. Okay, yeah, I think you're right. Was. Uh, yeah, because I, I think she's the the, the sole heir, right? Mm, yeah, yeah. And well, then her, her, her son, so, and then, which is good that she had. Oh yeah, a son to someone oh, yeah, else. She has a son. Yeah. yeah, so it was like her and her half sister, or her half sister, and then her half sister's friend, I guess, was the copyright lawyer. Okay. Yeah, and they had to sit down with DC. Yeah, and just how all that came about too was really interesting. I mean, just. Uh, Mark Taylor Nobleman finding out that uh, Athena existed, <laughs> that uh, Bill Finger did have a living heir because uh, he just thought his son was gay and you know didn't have any offsprings. But it turned out you know he did have a wife prior and had a daughter, Athena. Which even that story was sad. Just you know, kind of how the strange father relationship she had with her father too. So, and just even when she, I think she told the story how when she was little at school, kind of doing like a family history or family tree type presentation he was saying how her dad created Batman and and all that which we know now but back then everyone just saw the credit line Batman created Bob Kane and she kind of got you know made fun of for that or just ridiculed of saying you know you're making that up so like even she had her struggles was trying to get Bob or her her grandfather's uh, name recognized as one of the creators of Batman and then just once she got more involved with it going to cons and then even going to dc it was kind of a little interesting i found too that aspect of it where you know dc would welcome her with open arms and have her go to the premiere and you know i believe they were even paying her for certain uh situations with with i'm not sure just the movies or just in general with certain aspects of batman but it was almost kind of like they were just doing it to keep her happy and not have her do anything to try to get Bill Finger's name as an actual credit. It wasn't until, I think, one of that Comic-Con was just one fan asked the question, is there, you know, any chance of Bill Finger getting credited? And and I think they even said in the documentary there was a long silence. And then someone just set out, it might have been Dan DiDio, (laughs) where he said, DC has a good relationship with the Finger family. And that was it. And then once Athena got word of that, it's like, like no it's not as good as you're saying it could be better if we got the recognition that kind of got the ball rolling for all that where like you said got uh, the lawyers involved her ass sister and whatnot. so that's kind of what started it so got to give credit to that fan (laughs) who asked that question to you know have a trigger with Athena Finger that no this is actually not okay I didn't know how long that uh, or the the um this has been going on it's been it's been going on since uh like since uh the dark Knight or the dark knight came yeah out. Mm-hmm. i thought it was just a recent thing where they 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 went to dc and then they got the the um the creator thing changed i didn't know it was going on for for years and years and they finally got you know a with bill finger on uh you, you know wherever that credit appears yep. right 
Yeah, it's a few years ago now, but I remember being super excited when that announcement came out, where at first they just said it was going to appear on Gotham, and then when Batman v Superman came out, you'll see Bill Finger's name with Bob Kane. But now we were... At first it didn't mention comics in that official press release, if I remember right, but now Bill Finger's name's in every comic with Batman in it now, and yeah, I it was great when we when I saw that for the first time a few years ago, but I even have more appreciation now after watching this documentary. Whenever I, I open the comic, the comics we're going to be talking about later on this episode, just seeing Bill Finger's name on there after watching that documentary, right. just you know, get, get the smile on your faces, you know, knowing that sad that he's not alive to see it, but he's finally seeing some justice with what he did for Batman. And my biggest hope for this documentary is that so many people see it. I just want casual it's a must see for every batman fan to watch it but i just hope there's just casual audiences out there who may be just familiar with him through the movies or whatnot sees this documentary and just get more people familiar with the name bill finger and just how much he contributed to batman and how he wouldn't have sustained you know almost 80 years without without him so i hope as many people see this as possible it just i just want his name to get so much more recognized as bob Kane's was over the years is uh is Bill Finger uh, credited for Green Lantern? I know he yeah. created that or helped create that. Yeah, he was there. He created him with Alan, Alan Scott version, so I don't think yeah. so. But maybe because oh. it's, it's not Alan Scott and just because of the ones I'm reading with Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern Corps and all that, he didn't really have a hand in that, so maybe that's yeah. probably why he doesn't get the credit there. Maybe with Alan Scott stuff he does, though. Oh, I see. Well, I mean, the the Bill Finger story is, it's a sad one. I yeah. mean, not, not only for Bill Finger, but for his his whole family. I mean, it's a, it's a really, really sad story. And everybody should see this movie. Everybody should know this story. Oh, yes. And, and you know, it, it, it has a happy ending in the end, you know. He, he finally gets credit for creating Patman. Yeah, like I said, that was just a great way to end the the documentary on with seeing his name on there on the big screen. The only way it could have been better if it, you know it was with Mark Tyler Nobleman with Athena Finger and her grandson. If they were at the theater together and they saw it for the first time, that would have been <laughs> made it even more special. But it was still cool to see it end that way. Well, I'm sure they saw it. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, <laughs> and I'm sure uh, DC or Warren Brothers sent over the uh, a copy of it. So, yeah. So, like, he's. I'm gonna echo what you said. Everyone, please check out this documentary. You won't be disappointed, even yeah. if you're not the most diehard Batman fan. You're just gonna, I think, be enthralled with the story I had to tell about. You know, like we said, it is a sad story, but their justice is served at the end. It just sucks he wasn't alive to see it, but yeah, definitely yeah. have to watch it. It's just so so good. I'm so glad it's out there. So big thanks to Mark Tyler Nobleman for getting this started all those years ago. And then now being a part of this documentary and just showing us the process of how it all came about. It was just really fascinating. Yeah, and it's one of those things where it's like, I, I remember when uh, that book came out. And if you, if you were to tell me that there would be a whole documentary on Hulu about this, I would, I would have never believed yeah. <laughs> you. Because uh, I didn't know people were that interested in, um, you know, the the Bill Finger story. And it, uh, and everybody should be because it's a it's a sad story, but it's a great story, and it has a happy ending, like I said. So. The one that needed to be told. Oh yeah, 
definitely needed to be told. Um, so with that being said, we can get on to our news and uh, discussion. Uh, and our first piece of news is the Nightwing, the New Order Elseworlds comic announced. Now, Tim, you haven't been a fan of uh, Grayson or uh, this new Nightwing run. So I'm just, I'm just wondering. Why did you put this in the show notes? Because I will agree, when I first heard this idea, because it is an Elseworlds story, and the concept of it is like, I don't know about this one, because it's pretty much Dick Grayson. It's set in the future. Like I said, it's Elseworld. He's in charge of, you know, a new like military group of getting rid of superpowers and weapons. Like, weapons are outlawed in this future timeline. So are superpowers. And his job is, you know, to take in and take out uh, anyone with superpowers who are villains. But now the story is going to transition to the heroes where he's going to have to, you know, uh, take out heroes who with superpowers and kind of make him, making him public enemy number one for in the superhero community. So it's a different take. I mean, this is the official description of it. It's a story of the future without weapons where superpowers have been eliminated and outlawed. The man responsible? None other than Dick Grayson now leader of a government task force called the Crusaders who are charged with hunting the remaining supers. But when events transpire which turn the Crusaders' aims toward Grayson's own family, the former Boer Wonder must turn against the very system he helped create with help from the very people he's been hunting for years, the last metahumans of the DC Universe. So, yeah, not kind of a future story I'd expect for Dick Grayson to have, but here's why I'm kind of excited for it. The creative teams of Kyle Higgins and Trevor McCarthy as writer and artist. Oh. So. <laughs> okay, so it's going to be good then. It's going to be uh, it's going to be uh, more uh, animated series based. Right? <laughs> That's what I'm hoping for. You know how much I love Kyle Higgins. His Night Ring, Nightwing yeah. run was awesome, and even his work with Trevor McCarthy on Gates of Gotham was really good. And his Batman Beyond yeah. one Batman Beyond run was phenomenal, and his current uh, comics of Power Rangers have been really, really good. So. He hasn't disappointed me yet, and if anyone could pull off a story at a concept with Dick Grayson that might not necessarily grab me just from hearing the basic premise of it, it's going to be Kyle Higgins. And I love Trevor McCarthy's art, so that's why I'm excited for this story day. <laughs> so, so Kyle Higgins has been with or or been doing uh, Power Rangers. Then. Yeah, the relaunch of that comic oh, so series. So he hasn't even been with DC. Then. Oh yeah, he hasn't done anything for DC in a while. So. That, it's oh, good wow. to have him back doing that, and like I said, he, he did a great job with Nightwing in the New Fifty Two. So cool that he's yeah. writing him again, and even though it's a premise that you know makes you scratch your head a little bit. But I'm confident he'll turn it into a cool story. And, and, and there's there's no more uh, Grayson uh, comics. No, right? yeah, it's just Nightwing. It's all it's all Nightwing. Which okay. you know, uh, you know, when Rebirth started, I was pretty disappointed with it. I've heard it's gotten better and good, but just n- no story like concept of it has grabbed me to check it out again so I'm waiting for I need yeah. another good Nightwing story so hopefully <laughs> this will be it yeah. well uh, our next piece of news is um, that there is going to be a a, uh, a big event Tim. this is the event I will say <laughs> the- and you know I'm not really sure about um, the Watchmen in DC Comics in 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 Gotham or you know I was here Metropolis whatever I got it is it working Tim 
that's the thing. It hasn't been a big presence at all. I mean, this button crossover yeah. story that uh, we talked about in the last few episodes is the biggest hints we've gotten of it. So this is going to be kind of like its big coming out party since Rebirth. So, but just from the announcement, the Doomsday Clock is what it's called. And reading this interview that was on Sci-Fi Wire where the announcement was made with Jeff Johns, and then after reading the last part of the button in Flash 22, which we'll talk about later in the comic reviews, I cannot wait for this event. <laughs> I think it's going to, it sounds really cool. And yeah, I kind of get where you're coming from, and I'm sure a lot of fans are, Dane, with bringing the Watchmen into the DC universe, but I mean, it was teasing Rebirth, obviously, with the one-shot special, which it's a concept, yeah, it's going to be hard to nail, but I think if done right, it could be something that's really cool and kind of set the stage for some of the stuff that's happened in the DC universe as far as, you know, continuity-wise that can make sense and maybe fix a few things, which they've already hinted at with some of these Rebirth titles of kind of fixing some continuity issues and explaining why it's there. And with Jeff Johns behind it and just hearing him in this interview, it sounds he knows this is a really big deal. And he's calling it, you know, the cultivation of all my years working in comics and just, you know, it was the most important story I'm ever going to tell. And just hearing, you got to read this whole interview. Like I said, it's on Sci-Fi Wire, it's on Blaster.com. They give list 12 points of what the story is going to be about. I won't list, read all of them, but some of the ones that stood out to me and why I'm so excited about it is, you know, first of all, Jeff Johns, it's going to be by Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, which they're always a great pairing <laughs> when there, it comes to their comic stories. So it's going to be awesome from a visual standpoint, that's for sure. But the concept of it, it sounds, it just got me right away with one of the first questions uh, kind of explaining what it's going to be about. It's really a Dr. Manhattan and a Superman story. He says, that's how the idea kind of started. Just And he says it grew and grew and it, even says in the interview it took my heart and soul over like this is all he was invested with for so long but at the core of it he says it's about someone who's lost his humanity and just distanced himself from it that being dr manhattan but on the flip side then you got an alien who embodies humanity more than most humans and that's a great concept in parallel between those two characters that i can't wait to see explored in the story and he even goes on to say how is it, it's like he likes the idea of you know the seeds being planted that Doctor Manhattan and the Watchmen universe influenced DC, but like what if you know what what if that happened in reverse? What if the DC continuity kind of influences the bleak dark world of the Watchmen continuity? And one of uh, his quotes that I really liked in here was about you know how everyone says that uh, dark gritty realistic things that makes everything or dark and gritty make things real. He kind of just talks against that saying no you know that's not obviously the case for a lot of things especially in the dc universe that's not always proves to be true it's you know the dc character is supposed to be inspiring it's supposed to be hopeful and while they're in some pretty dark situations and tell dark stories their main thrust in there is that you know they're there to inspire people in their universe and even for those here who are reading it you know there's a lot of people out there who take inspiration from these characters who have been around for so long so the fact that that's going to be you know a big strong point of the story and how that can maybe influence the Watchmen world too it has me super intrigued like how much of the Watchmen world is going to be involved is it going to be just Dr. Manhattan are we going to see other characters are they going to go to that universe so there's a lot of stuff that's you know, intriguing, and I can't wait to see what it's actually going to be, even though he does stress it's mainly 
uh, Superman and Dr. Manhattan stories. So I definitely recommend checking out this interview. I just really like what Jeff Johns had to say here and just, you know, how they had to get this right. He even says this the reason it comes out in November is because, you know, I just, me and Gary had to make sure we were nailing everything. It was something that we were very passionate about and didn't not, and do not want to take lightly. And that's why it took him kind of so long to get the story out there. Because if you remember when the Rebirth special came out last May, I was expecting it to be, you know, this story of the Watchmen coming to the DC universe. That'll probably be, you know, the first event in Rebirth that'll probably come out, you know, later in the fall sometime. But it's going to be a good year and a half since Rebirth started. So, you know, he's taking his time with it and they wanted to nail it. And just, you know, the passion he has for it is, you know, something I haven't seen uh, Jeff Johns talk about in a way like he's doing in this interview here. So, the concept of it, Jeff John's passion for it, and just how what it could mean for the DC universe going forward has me super intrigued and excited about it. So, yeah, Doomsday Clock, I cannot wait for it. So, <laughs> this is going to be something that's hopefully, if it's you know, first off, it's good. I think it's going to be a big monumental point for DC, no matter what, if they're going to bring these two universes together. But if it's done really well, like I expect it to be, this could be maybe a DC story for the ages if it all goes according to the way that Jeff Johns plans and how he's building it up. That's another thing I like about it too where it's not going to be this massive big crossover event. He even says that you're not going to have crossover titles that you have to read where you have to see Superman against Dr. Manhattan acting comics. Like, nope, this is just one self-contained story. You're only going to read the story in the Doomsday Clock issues and that's that's it. And didn't say how long it is, but I think he sent a tweet saying it's bigger than six, shorter than thirteen. So maybe it's going to be a ten to twelve issue arc. I don't know, but uh, whatever he has planned, I'm ready to be along for the ride. So yeah, November can't get here soon enough, especially after how uh, the button story ended. So I cannot wait for this. Yeah, you see that that has me excited because I think that was one of the problems with the new fifty two when there was a big you know story. Like every yeah. book was, you know, a piece of the story. Remember the Court of Owls, the uh, final parts of that. <laughs> I was about to say, or <laughs> as an example, as an example, the Court of Owls, where you know you, you had to buy every single book, otherwise you were missing a part of the story. And I think with that, I mean, the the, the Court of Owls was a great story, and I'm not taking away anything oh, sure, from definitely. that. But yeah, uh, the the problem with that is. A, you got to pick up all those titles, titles that you you don't regularly pick up. But the second, and I think the most important reason is that, like, you, you, you kind of water down your story in a sense because you, you have all of these parts and they have to have stories with them, and the stories might not necessarily be the best thing. Whereas if you have a small, I mean, not a small, but I mean, it's still big. But if you have a contained story where you don't have to buy, you know, action comics or you don't have to buy Superman or you don't have to buy Wonder Woman, you, you know, you can just buy this this comic and get the whole story. I think that, that I think that in the end, it's it's a, it's a better idea. Well, definitely. And like you said, even from a creative standpoint, it has to get a little, I don't want to say frustrating, but maybe as complicated as it doesn't need to be because you got to work with other writers and other creative teams out there to make sure they're aligning with what you're doing in the main story it gets more complicated probably than it has to be but like you said when it's just this self-contained story jeff johns and gary frank can just 
do whatever they want as far as you know telling the story they want to tell with no you know have, having to worry about oh what about what's happening in this issue and what this other writer is going to tell that connects to the story so it's just going to make it a more focused story that is really going to be like I said <laughs> hopefully something special and one of the quotes I like uh, about uh, what Jeff John said he's as far as creating the story, he goes, I think Gary and I have earned the right to do a story we believe in. With Rebirth, I think we proved we care and take this seriously. We love Watchmen. We love the DC Universe. And I totally agree with him with his pedigree and the his, his history of writing amazing comics, bringing back characters that we thought were gone and impossible to be part of the DC Universe again in a way that makes sense. He did it, and he with you know Green Lantern, Barry Allen as a Flash, it's, it can go on and on, and then just even in Rebirth, setting the planting the seeds for bringing back characters and histories that were gone in the New Fifty Two back into this continuity, and yeah, he definitely has earned the right to tell these stories, and he's saying it is going to be his biggest, you know, most important uh, stories ever written, and I'm I'm believing him in that front, and I hope it when it's all said and done, it is the pinnacle of his writing career because it has the potential, I think, to do that. So it's going to be a long ways off just to get the first issue, but even to get the complete story to really fully judge how it's going to be, <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. But like I said, I'm going to be more than happy to be along for the ride no matter how long it's going to take to get this whole story completed for Doomsday Clock. So, yeah, let's get to November. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's it for all of our news. Um I guess we can talk about the the, the, the Wonder Woman uh, stuff, uh, the the early reviews. Yeah. I guess you you could call them, and and they're positive. People are saying that they uh, they really like this Wonder Woman movie, which is a good thing to hear. Oh yes. I mean it's 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 not what we got with uh, Batman. I mean we we see now. Here's where I'm kind of uh, not sure about because. If you recall, there was an early screening of Batman vs. Superman, right? Mm-hmm. And everybody was saying that, you know, this is the best DC movie. This is a great movie. And then it ended up not being good. Um, I'm not sure about Suicide Squad, but... Um, Here's the difference with that, though. Okay. The Batman v Superman stuff, they had early fan screenings. And I don't want to take away from yeah. anyone's personal opinions who loved Batman v Superman. That's cool if you right. do. But right. these screenings from Wonder Woman, are, you know, these were screened for the press and critics who you know are going to be yeah, reviewing but, these. Yeah, but, but what cre- uh, press and what Well, critics? all the mainstream ones who reviewed, <laughs> who gave Batman v Superman bad reviews and Suicide Squad, you know, their low Rotten Tomatoes scores. So that's what has me excited yeah. about it. The people I've seen tweeting about it, or people I know who <laughs> tweeted that they didn't like Batman v Superman or Suicide Squad, but they're yeah. praising Wonder Woman, which is a big difference. But, but was it? You see, I'm I, I'm just wondering because it, it, was it IGN, was it GameSpot, or or whatever site? Was it these kind of sites, or was it? Oh yeah, they're definitely uh, there. New York Times. They're definitely there. Was but... it the New York Times, or or was it? Uh, uh, the Chicago Sun Times, or was it? You know, I think it was a mix. Well, I haven't seen tweets from those, but I mean, a lot of the mainstream yeah. like websites that you know, you know, they're mainly focused on comic book movies and that type of stuff. They're, right. they're the ones who they're the sites I mainly you know look for their opinions than just typical film critics who are just you know, you know, just there to review any kind of movie. But for the fans who are, I know who are comic book fans. And you know, know these characters. They're the ones who I've seen are braiding Wonder Woman as well. So, 
because because the the thing about this is like I actually agreed with a lot of the critics, um, especially the the ones that weren't involved with comic book sites and gaming sites and you know all these all these kind of sites. I actually agreed more with the, with the um, the the reviewers from uh, larger um, you know newspapers, websites, stuff like that. Where they did not like the movie at all, mm-hmm. you know. Well, regardless of you know of who's re- what different sites or you know press outlets are reviewing it, this is definitely a great sign that we haven't seen <laughs> from a DC yeah. EU yeah. movie before. Because it, I mean, if you get a room full of people who see the movie and the general consensus of it is that it's really good and, and great, more than likely that's going to be the consensus for other screenings too. I mean, if it was more mixed after this, I would say yeah, there's probably this might be another. Uh, Batman v Superman, Suicide Squad, all over again. But the general consensus so far has been super positive, which is, you know, like I said, I think I tweeted out saying, you know, like, what's the strange thing I'm seeing online? It's like positive reactions for a DCEU movie. I thought that wasn't possible. <laughs> like, this is so weird. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, after Batman vs Superman and Suicide Squad, it's you, you just have to have a good movie, right? Uh, an okay movie. Yeah. So. And it sounds like it's better than a a good movie and an okay movie. So things are looking good. That's for yeah, sure. I, yeah, <laughs> I'm just excited, so excited to see it. We're just two weeks away now. I found out they're doing yeah. fan screenings next Wednesday, but some some weren't really too close to me. So <laughs> yeah. just got to wait the extra week. But the buzz around Wonder Woman is a lot of peak right now, and it's got me so pumped for it. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah, for me. Um, I'm still going to wait for the reviews before I see it. You know, it's 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 just something I have to do nowadays because um, Batman vs Superman and Suicide Squad kind of, you know, it it let me down a little bit. So uh, I'm 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 definitely going to wait for the reviews from from these critics. So uh, with that being said. Uh, now we can get into our album reviews. Speaking of reviews and critics, <laughs> time for us to put our critic hats on. <laughs> um, Tim gave me. Uh, now is it Halcyon? Yeah, Halcyon Digest by uh, Deer Hunter, and I gave um, Tim. I'm rich beyond your wildest dreams by Diarrhea Planet. <laughs> Probably the best band um, name ever. <laughs> <laughs> um. So Tim, why don't you go first? And I, I gave you this album because I figured it would be more. There, there wasn't a large concept behind it. It was just a simple, uh, just an album, right? Mm. Just a regular album. So, uh, I guess I'm your curator and your mind to <laughs> to what we should review. Um, this is just the right. It, it's not really a, a favorite album of mine, Tim. Um, it's not really a. You know, if if you don't like it, you know we're never gonna speak again. <laughs> I like four three eleven albums. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, this is just uh, an album that I listened to that I thought you would like. Well, I I'll say off the bat that what did you te- texting me the name? I'm like, uh, what type of bad is this gonna be? <laughs> the name like Diarrhea Planet. <laughs> it's gonna be a joke type <laughs> band. Like, <laughs> They they have they have four guitarists, <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny how you say it's not one of your favorite albums, Dane. Because yeah. 
I'm going to say this is now my favorite album that you've given me to review. Oh, I really, really, really enjoyed this album. Really? Yep. <laughs> no, no, I, I am curious to hear why. Man, it, was just, it was just a good, solid album that, you know, to me it had kind of a 70s, 80s slash 80s rock sound to it. Some songs in the vocals, especially kind of reminded me of a little bit of the Ramones and just some of that 80s rock and late 70s stuff going on at that time. Good vocal melodies, which to me is just might be the most important part of a song that gets me hooked on it and just has me like it. But at the same time, too, good variety of sounds with the music that it had. Great guitar work on it. There were some cool guitar solos and then just cool guitar licks throughout, you know, the the course of the different songs on there. So just a great sound overall and just almost all the songs had great melodies to it, I thought. Um, I guess the one negative I will say about it was that uh, I think they had more than two vocalists on there because some of the voice, yeah. voices and the singing on the track sounded different. And one of them like, wasn't necessarily my favorite style. If it was the whole album like that, it maybe could have gotten a little old, but thankfully, like I said, there was another singer and even that other singer who vo- vocals vocal I can't even say it <laughs> vocal styles it wasn't horrible but just you know something that wasn't my favorite but yeah some of my favorite songs on there uh, the first track light dream that's probably my favorite vocal melody of the song it got me hooked on the album right away where i thought okay this could be something pretty good and had a good tempo the vocal melody is really good i'm digging this and then the third track the sound of my ceiling fan this is where I started thinking, okay, there's going to be some good variety on here because it had a different sound to how it, it began from the first two tracks. Again, the vocals on it, that's what struck me. The sound is so different from the first two tracks with this other singer. And I, I really dug it. I go, this sounds really cool. And then Field of Dreams, the fourth track, that another one that was different from the previous tracks on it. It starts off kind of slow, just with a little distorted guitar, but then it builds up to a nice rock song with a really cool guitar solo at the end and then my favorite track off the album uh white girls slash students of the blues part one that's my favorite song off the album because that guitar you know i i I knew you were gonna (laughs) that that was gonna be one of your favorite songs like oh yeah this is gonna be tim's favorite song and you know me too well that guitar riff is so catchy and cool i i loved it and just the again the vocal melody of this song is really cool too just all around it's a short song but it's awesome the guitar work especially i loved it and then the song uh togano that's how you say it <laughs> it's probably the heaviest song on the album was uh just even the way uh not necessarily screaming but a little more aggression to the vocals on this one and some heavy distortions with the guitar so i thought that was a nice change from the, the other songs on there while the other ones were you know had distortions and were upbeat and tempo this one was probably the heaviest which i liked and then there's another really good one, Skeleton Head. It's one of her songs that starts off really slow, but it, was, it had a really nice vocal melody to it at the beginning where, you know, it's just pretty much the guitar and him singing. It was just really cool. Then it builds up, you know, where the other instrument comes in and the vocal melody continues to be good throughout that song too. So a lot of standout tracks yeah. on this one, just a good solid album, solid album overall and kind of want to check out more of the stuff because I really liked what I heard on I'm Rich Beyond Your Wildest Dreams. So I'm going to give it a solid four out of five. I really, really enjoy this one. Wow. And I didn't expect you to like uh, uh, Skeleton Head. <laughs> oh, really? I you, yeah, I thought you were going to be like, uh, it was too slow for you. The, the vocal melody is what carries it. It was just really good. Yeah. So. Oh, good, good. Because <laughs> like, I, I was, I put a lot of thought into it, Tim. <laughs> 
I really do. <laughs> um, because they, listening to the album, they they, they kind of sound like Weezer, uh, like the the early days of Weezer. Bit. Yeah, and I was like, oh, okay, so Tim should like this better than you know he liked whatever. But I'm glad you liked it, Tim. Yeah, but this guy is um, kind of funny. Where now you got to think, okay. If it's an album that I think's okay, but it's not my favorite, but Tim will probably like it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like not my favorite. I mean, I think it's a good album, uh, but it's not one of my favorites. So, But anyway, uh, yeah, you gave me Halcyon Digest by Deer Hunter. And I have to say, Tim, I, I haven't listened to any Deer Hunter albums. I, I don't really know their music. I'm not familiar with Yeah, them. I should say, too, I just found out about them two years ago. Because a friend of mine, uh, yeah. Paul Herman, he's a big music guy, and he's trying to get me into some bands that he likes that I might not necessarily have heard of before. And Deer Hunter, Deer Hunter yeah. was one of those bands. He like made me a playlist of certain songs, and their track, I'll tell you which track later to see what you think of it, that really stood out to me. That's like, okay, I really like the song. I'm going to check out their album, and I enjoy their album. So they're a band I'm just uh, fairly new to discovering as well. So Yeah. Um well, initially going into the album, that first song, mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure what it's called. It's called Earthquake, uh, I believe. Earthquake. Yeah. Um, I was like, okay, this is just a sort of, you know, a, a downer album. <laughs> I would call it <laughs> like a, like a just a, they're gonna sing about their feelings and it's gonna be acoustic guitars throughout the whole thing and they're not gonna do anything original they're just gonna be just one of these bands that are popular nowadays that make sad songs about <laughs> breakups or you know whatever right um but I actually like this record Tim ah, nice. I did <laughs> I really like this this album and just going off of my notes um, I like the vocalist. He, it's a different style. It sounds, it it, it never rises above a whisper, is what my notes say. That's, that's actually uh, a good call. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's and my second one is, uh, it seems like he doesn't care about uh, the words he wrote or the way he sings or the way he sounds, and. Um, or even about pronouncing words, uh, but it's it's. I mean this in a good way, in a cool way. It, it it sounds cool, in the sense that he's not trying to put anything on his voice. You know what I mean? Mm, yeah. Whereas he's not trying to, um, I don't know. He he he's not trying to be uh, James Hetfield from uh, Metallica. You know, <laughs> he's not trying to be that because he's not that. Yeah, he's doing his own which thing. I, uh, you know, which I really uh, respect. You know, um, and my second, my 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 next note is that uh, the production overall seems like they don't care. They they just don't care, like a punk record, mm-hmm. like an early punk record, like a uh, Ramones record or a Sex Pistols record. Brother, it just sounds like they don't care about how they recorded the album. Which, like I said from the last the our, our last review section, it doesn't. Like I don't care if you sound the best on a record. I just don't care about that. You you can have the most muddled record, but as long as your 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 you know your style comes through is what truly truly matters to me. And with this album, it seems like they they don't care about how they they sound. It sounds rough, 
but put together it's it sounds like it's stitched together really roughly like a like a sweater right <laughs> that has holes in it because the whoever put it together didn't you know really care about how it looks um and i got i have great respect for that um it but it is a great production um it's, it, it doesn't sound so bad that you can't listen to it right then. sure yeah uh, <laughs> obviously it, it, yeah you know i it, it's all the little sounds that they put in put in this album it's you know the little taps of the drums there it's not a full-on drum it's it's like they're tapping the side of the snare instead of the you know the meat of the the drum head right um it's it's the drums and the percussion that makes the song come to life makes all these songs come to life and it, it creates an atmosphere and and that's another thing too it, it it creates an atmosphere rather than just being a you know we're gonna play a standard record we're, we're, i mean we're gonna play like a standard regular band it's it's all these little things that really make it come to life and it sounds homemade it doesn't sound i mean it, even it, I'm sure now it it was recorded in a professional studio with a sound guy and a whole big board, but what I get I, I don't hear that and a lot of records you, you hear that okay this album was made in a professional studio that's the problem I have now too this, take no offense Tim <laughs> oh I said the three eleven criticism coming <laughs> no not three eleven but another one of your fans. <laughs> Nirvana. Uh, oh. That's the problem I have with Nirvana, is that they try to have this, you know, punk sound, but uh, they recorded all, all of their albums in studios and professional studios, like Nevermind, where it's, you know, it's they they try to they try to make it sound like a punk record, but they did it in a professional recording studio, and that just doesn't work. Uh, um, you know, speaking of which, I just listened to. Uh, uh, in Utero, um, the the Steve Albini Which is uh, songs. Their best album, one of my favorite albums ever. So, tread lightly, yeah. Dane. <laughs> <laughs> well, this isn't a review about In Utero, but uh, the production on it, I felt like it wasn't very good. It doesn't have you know that sound. It's you know, such an that, amazing um, sound. That's what I love about it. The production on it. It's that sound they captured with Steve Albini. Uh, Dane. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm talking about the Steve Albini uh, songs, right? Uh, the ones that haven't been uh, reproduced, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, those songs now are great. Now, if they just released that, I think maybe not at the time. Maybe not for a mainstream record, but I think over time people would have grown to appreciate it. Um, man, those songs are great. The, the Steve Albini. Uh, I think it's uh, the Heartshape Box and All Apologies, right? Yeah. Are the two songs on the that deluxe version. And I was listening to All Apologies, and I think the 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 sort of sound of the guitars and the drums and the bass, where it kind of masks vocal. I think that. I think that's what would have made it a great record but for, oh, for, for me anyway <laughs> so <laughs> um, but anyway uh, um, this is about Halcyon Digest uh, yeah it sounds homemade it doesn't sound like it was recorded in a, in a professional studio and I think that that works for them not against them um, 
overall, like it, it, it took me a while. Like it, I had to listen to, listen to it uh, twice from beginning to end um, to really get it and to finally. Because when I first listened to it, it, it reminded me of something, and I couldn't really. It reminded me of a band, and I couldn't really put my finger on it. And throughout the whole record, I was I was uh, wondering who it was, so I had to listen to it again. And it reminded me of uh, the newer Radiohead albums, hmm, like uh, the album that they just put out, uh, minus the, the the sort of sleepiness and you know the the sort of empty space that they have in their songs which works for them but um it's not really my taste uh, it's a the the sound of the album is very dreamy it, it doesn't sound like they have any sort of song in their songs i, I know that sounds odd but it sounds like they don't really have songs in their songs even though it's an album and they're they're musicians well you stuff. use the perfect word i thought with the atmosphere it created it, just, it has this unique yeah. atmosphere to it that i just really like so i know what you mean right now is it have, have have you listened to other deer hunter albums listen to their I believe their first two some of the earlier songs they have some good yeah. songs on there but kind of at the end of one of the i think their second album it kind of goes a little too experimental where <laughs> it just like not even songs it's like tracks of music and just sound effects on there yeah. so uh, their latest album that came out in 2016 that one's uh, pretty good too but I think Halcyon Digest is going to be their best oh. and is it, is that how they sound on all the other records on this album? for the most part is yeah I would sound? say oh. but again it's, they're one of the oh. bands who it does have some of the other albums I listen to they does have its unique sound too so but you can kind of tell it's still mainly through the vocals but musically they kind of switch yeah. it up pretty well too oh i see um so so yeah i mean i i guess i'll just wrap wrap it up by by saying that uh my biggest takeaway from this album was that um uh, i thought it sounded like a punk album uh, with acoustic guitars and you know i i decided to read more about the album and and, and Apparently that's what they tried to go for, or that's what they were going for, and um, you know that's that's what I kind of meant uh, by you have to do something different if you're gonna copy somebody's sound. You know, um, you know if, if if they didn't do something uh, different, they just sound like a regular, you know, indie band, cute indie band, you know, that, that plays to a certain kind of audience, um, but. I guess overall there's just something different about them and that's what I appreciate about this album so uh, my, my favorite song is probably uh, you see it was from two it, I, it it had me torn between two different songs the, the third song um, I think is uh, Revival Yeah, I thought that song was pretty good and uh, the fourth song uh, Sailing Okay. or uh you know, not now that I'm looking uh, looking at the track list, uh, the the last song uh, he would have laughed. Yeah, yeah, the guitar. Uh, so I'm probably gonna go with uh, revival. Yeah, that's a good one. Now, which one do you yeah. think was my favorite song that I like? I said was on that playlist my friend Paul made me that made me check out the band. <laughs> See, it's probably one of their shorter songs, right? Uh, no, not really. Because you because <laughs> you like short songs too. <laughs> uh, 
I am going to say uh, Coronado. Mm, sorry, close, but no, you're two tracks off. <laughs> it is helicopter. I that's that was my first. <laughs> that was really my first choice. I love that song. That's one of those songs I think really stresses what you're talking about earlier—the whole atmosphere and the mood of it, the yeah. music of it. And I just love again the vocal melody. That's my favorite on that song too. But just that comes together for a nice complete package that really, you know, immerses you into the sound they created for that album. I just love that song. Oh, I see. Well, that was my first. Should have stuck with your gut, Dean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm probably going to give this one a four out of five. Oh, nice. I thought this was a really good album. They, it sounded like a punk album with acoustic, uh, plucked acoustic guitars, which is really hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but that's just the feeling I got from it. So uh, four four out of five stars for me. Cool. We both had uh, but, positive album reviews this episode, which is nice. Yeah. Yeah, and especially with, with with this album, I did not expect to like this album. I was like, "Oh no!" Tim, I will say the first gonna... the first track is my <laughs> least favorite on the whole album. I usually skip it. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to it; it's just a little too slow and kind of boring. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was like, oh, "Tim, I am going to." Well, I mean, why did you give me this album? Uh, hopefully, this isn't one of your favorites because. <laughs> but then you know you listen to the entire the more songs and you know it's ended up being a good album too, so so it all works out in the yep. end <laughs> go back to the Weezer album everything will be alright in the end <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we can move on to conversation with Alex and listener feedback so uh, Tim why don't you tell us what Jordan has to say yep Jordan as always sends another good email starts enough by saying hey Tim and Dane and Alex Hope you guys had a great free comic book day. I certainly did. I got up early and went with a friend to a comic book shop uh, near my college, and I picked up a bunch of free comics, including the first issue of the Wonder Woman Year One Rebirth arc, and got some awesome new collectibles, including a Green Arrow, the Longbow Hunter's action figure, and a Batgirl of Burnside Funko Pop final figure. Then we watched the Batman and Bill documentary. I'm glad I was able to remind you guys about that. I loved it. I knew that Bill Finger didn't get the credit he deserved for Batman until recently, but this gave so much more detail into the story. I didn't know what Bob Kane actually went out of his way to discredit Finger. I came to not think too highly of Kane after watching the film, although the fact that he said later in life that he regretted not giving Finger credit redeemed him in my eyes a little bit. My favorite moment in the film was when Finger got writing credit on an episode of Batman 66, and we got to see how proud he was of it. While it was sad that it was the only time he really got credit while he was while he was alive, it was a really heartwarming moment too. The way the movie utilized motion comics to tell the story worked very well, in my opinion. I also liked how it was sort of a detective story. I think Mike or Mark T- Tyler Nobleman even said in the film that he was doing the detective work like Batman. We follow him as he uncovers the history of Finger's life, career, and family. It's just a great documentary, and I think it's a much watch for all Batman fans. It would even probably, or would even probably, be enjoyable for someone who's not a Batman fan. Well, glad you enjoyed it just as much as we did, Jordan. And again, thanks for letting us know it was out <laughs> two weeks ago as we were recording our last episode. Although I had to wait yeah. till Sunday night to watch it, but <laughs> but because I totally forgot the date. Yeah, <laughs> like, I, I, I I totally forgot about it. I knew it was in May, but I didn't know it was that soon. 
<laughs> but uh, he was uh, talking about Free Comic Book Day, and I kind of feel like, you know, as a bad comic book fan for admitting this, but I really don't go to the Free Comic Book Day events. I went one year not too long ago, and it was just like a madhouse in there. <laughs> and to be honest, the books that are usually out on Free Comic Book Day aren't really, you know, something that piques my interest or necessity. Sometimes DC puts out some stuff yeah. that's like a one-shot that could be important for upcoming issues. But the thing is, they put it on digital not too long after, so <laughs> I kind of read it that way. So I don't usually go to too many of those Free Comic Book Day events. I think they're cool, and I'm glad they do it, and... Uh, People or comic book shops have big events where there's cosplays. They have different creators there, which is awesome. But for me, who don't, someone doesn't like to be, you know, amongst two bigs of crowds, especially in small comic book shops where you can barely move or <laughs> find what you want. I just kind of don't like to deal with that hassle. But that's just me. I'm glad you had a great time, Jordan, and for everyone else who does. So, I, I, have you been to too many free comic book days, Dane? Because I know you're kind of like me, where you don't really go too much of them, especially <laughs> since you've been mainly doing digital the last few years. But yeah. Um, yeah, I used to go. Um, uh, back when uh, I was a kid, they, um, my old comic shop had a really, really good uh, free comic book day. But not not only because of the comics, but because people used to, you know, uh, cosplay. Uh, there was there was Magic uh, the Gathering out. There was uh, Dungeons and Dragons, um, Warhammer. There was a lot of that stuff, and y- you don't only go for. Um, the free comic book you, you you know you go and um you look at all these other stuff but um so yeah i used to i used to love it when i was a kid but uh nowadays it's not really something that i would go to uh because the the comics aren't really that good i remember uh when i used to go to my comic shop um they had or they had told me before beforehand that they had a star wars comic i'm not sure what it was so I went for that, and that was the last time I went. Um, but most of the books that they have for free comic book day aren't really the best thing in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's not really something that I go to. Yeah, we're sounding like two grumpy old men complaining about it. <laughs> I know. I, I guess we don't get it anymore. But, yeah. um, it's just the books aren't that good. I mean, it, it, it's usually like it's, – it's not even a it, – it, it, because the last time I went, it, it wasn't even a full comic. It was co- it was like a 10, 15-page book. And I was like, oh, I could have just stayed home <laughs> and not got this. I remember the last time I went, it actually, I actually didn't know it was free comic book day. It was just a normal day I was going to go <laughs> get my comic. It was like super packed. I was like, man, it's going, yeah. oh, it's free comic book day. And like it took me a while just for the comic book shop manager to give me my books on my polos because he was so busy with customers and all yeah. that. I was like, oh, I've got to remember not to come on free comic book day. Like I, oh, really? Because the last time I went for the Star Wars comic, it was it, it wasn't even that. I mean, maybe I didn't go at a, a busy time or whatever, but it, it, it didn't look that packed. Oh, yeah, it was it was really crazy. I could barely move in that shop. Uh, it's, a, it's a smaller shop, oh, too, so but they get yeah. a big crowd, I mean, which is cool. I mean, like I said, it's, this Free comic book day gets more, you know, young kids into comics who might not necessarily check them out before. Then you know, it's awesome that they do it. It's it's a win if they get new comic book readers. So keep on doing it, even though yeah. me and Dane probably won't go to. <laughs> yeah, and I'm I mean I I'm just wondering if it was a it was a thing where I'm kind of you know reminiscing about it, um, or if it 
I mean, because... I don't know. I remember going to Free Carnival Day when I was a kid, and, like, they... They used to have more. I mean, there, it, it used to be a big thing. I remember, like... See, I, I think uh, it would be the opposite, at least from people I've seen, like, on Twitter and social media stuff, how it is a big event for most shops. But I guess maybe just your store <laughs> maybe dialed it down yeah. a bit. No, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because that, that store ended up closing oh, okay. down. <laughs> and um, um, now there's an, a, a different store. And it's a, it's a smaller store. And they, they mostly focus on... Uh, the the gaming side you uh, know the the warhammer the dungeons and dragons gotcha. um magic you know stuff like that but i remember i mean free comic book day i remember learning how to play uh dungeons and dragons and magic there <laughs> you know and i remember staying there all day oh wow <laughs> as a kid <laughs> i remember staying there all day and you know uh now it's more like a they have the comics out and stuff and I guess you can grab one. So I'm not really sure. But yeah. Well, at least you had some good experiences with it in the past, better than I did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, so, so you, you never used to go then? Not really, no. Well, maybe back when I lived somewhere else, like in the neighborhood yeah. where I grew up, there was a comic shop. I think I went there once. Got it. That was a bigger store, so it didn't seem as crowded. But then again, nothing, none of the free yeah. comics actually drew me to the shop on that day to actually, you know, I have to get it. Like I said, most of them are on digital now anyway, so... Yeah, but that's just me. Glad everyone else is having a great time with it every year, so which is cool. <laughs> but Jordan continues saying, "When there's trouble, you know who to call." Teen Titans, <laughs> Tim. I can't tell you how happy I was to hear that you're finally watching the original Teen Titans animated series. I have immense love for that show. Please keep sharing your thoughts on the podcast as you progress through it. I cannot wait to hear what you think. Well, I, I guess the progress where I'm at now, and I should say, Jordan, that it's going to be a very slow process <laughs> as I make my way through the series, unfortunately. But I'm up to episode... Uh, I watched five episodes from season one. Like I said, on season two, I watched uh, the Judas Contract adaption they did. But the last episodes I watched um, last Saturday actually were Forces of Nature and the sum of his parts, which Forces of Nature was one of these uh, two like godlike metahumans that control thunder or lightning are used by Slade Wilson to... Uh, attack the city and drop the Teen Titans. And there was a cool fight between uh, uh, Robin and Slade, who he didn't, who was Deathstroke was disguised as someone else, but he didn't know it was actually him in his, you know, classic costume that we all know and love. That was cool. And then some of his parts was one with uh, Cyborg, who, you know, kind of runs out of power, but then gets taken down to this underground, like, scientist who's pretty much more machine than human who wants to turn cyborg into fully a machine so as he would be a perfect that way and none of the human flaws of that was another good one but the some of his parts and divide and conquer which was the third episode uh or i should say forces of nature and divide and conquer are uh, probably my two favorite episodes of season one right now divide and conquer especially i thought that was a really good one where uh, robin and cyborg are going at it <laughs> as far as how to uh, work together at Cyborg uh, goes off on his own for a bit but I'm only five episodes in I'm digging it so far like I said should have watched it sooner but I'm glad I'm getting into it now and like I said it's going to be a slow process but I will watch the entire series but uh, Jordan then continues saying that if I can find my spot he goes oh I know you already watched their adaption of the Judas Contract in season 2 which is probably the peak of the series but there's some other great stuff in the show as well Season 1 has some amazing stuff involving Robin and Slade, in my opinion. 
While Season 3 isn't my favorite season due to a somewhat lackluster version of its big bad, it does feature what I think might be the single best episode of the entire series, Haunted. Season 4 is a return to form in my opinion. I think it's the second best season just behind Season 2, and it focuses on Raven and Trigon. I'm just so eager to hear what your thoughts on all of it. I don't want to say much uh, more. Don't want to say much more for fear of spoiling stuff. But I can't wait to continue conversing with you about these ser- about the series. And once you're done with Teen Titans, I'll go back trying to convince you to watch the Batman. Yeah, I, I've been saying that for a while now. It's on Netflix. It's been on Netflix for a while. I do got to watch that entire series one day because I know a lot of people say it's you know doesn't have the it's not as bad as the reputation. I know a lot of some fans have with it and there's all good episodes on there i just gotta hurry up before it probably gets taken off netflix <laughs> by the time i get to it so uh majority continues saying i understand your apprehension about subscription boxes i had the same apprehension for a long time i figured that for every one that thing i wanted there would be something else that i didn't want however once legion of collectors launched i started to consider that this might be the one for me i started watching unboxing videos of them and what I realized was that there usually wasn't a single thing in any of the boxes that I didn't want, since it was all DC stuff. That's why I finally went ahead and subscribed. Like I said in my last email, the next box is Batman the Animated Series. While they don't offer a free trial, you can just order one box, so you don't have to subscribe for a year's worth if you don't want to. Well, that's definitely good to know. <laughs> I might have to do that for that Animated Series one. And he continues with, Okay, on to Batman 22. I loved it too. While it's not my comic of the year, that goes to Batman 14, hands down, I did think it was phenomenal. Spoilers, I totally geeked out about seeing Bruce and Thomas team up to fight off the Amazons and Atlanteans. I thought it was great to see Bruce throw a battering at Thomas's gun as well. It was just a really emotional issue overall. Bruce telling Thomas that he has a grandson was such a touching moment. I really appreciated how Thomas wants Bruce not to be Batman anymore so that he can find happiness and be with his son in a way that Thomas couldn't be there for Bruce. Alfred often tries to convince Bruce to be happy and to give up being Batman, but Bruce doesn't really listen. But coming from his father, one of the two people whose death led to Bruce becoming Batman in the first place, I feel like it's going to make Bruce at least consider giving up the cape and cowl. I also loved how Thomas told Bruce that he was the greatest gift he'd ever been given in life. The homage to Batman Begins was very well done as well. While I don't like the new version of Thomas' line as much as the version in Batman Begins, it's still very good, and I just appreciated the nod, that that beautiful moment from the film. Then we get to the end of the issue, where Batman and the Flash run into reverse Flash before he dies. The Flash 22 is out today as I'm sending this email, but I haven't read it yet. I did read the preview pages, though. I'm very excited to read it, hear your thoughts on it, and share my thoughts on it in the next email. Based on the preview pages, it looks to be an incredible finale to the arc. Well, Jordan, you'll find out in just a few minutes <laughs> what I thought of the finale to the button arc. But on to his questions. He says, What did you guys think of the final Wonder Woman trailer? I loved it. It might be my favorite of the four, but honestly, they've all been phenomenal. So it's hard to say. Part of my love for it might be that it was such a surprise to me. I knew we, I knew we were getting something for Wonder Woman at the MTV Movie and TV Awards thanks to a tweet sent out by Gal Gadot but I expected it to be more along the lines of the one-minute clip that aired during Gotham rather than a full trailer. So I was quite pleasantly surprised when it turned out to be a full trailer, and a great one at that. It opens up such hauntingly beautiful music, and I really like the conversation between Hippolyta and young Diana at the beginning. Just as I I did the following the third trailer, 
I've got to praise that young actress who plays young Diana. She does a really good job of making you believe she's a younger version of the same character that Gal Gadot is playing. The clips of Chris Pine in the trailer are great. He kills it in both the comedic and serious moments. I like what we saw of Dr. Poison. It seems like she's going to be a very formidable threat along with Ares. I love Diana's line with Hippolyt- when Hippolyta forbids her from returning if she leaves the mascara. Who will I be if I stay? It gets to the heart of who Wonder Woman is. She just refuses to stand by and let people die outside of the mascara. I think the clip of her climbing up a building to get her weapons and costume is incredible. The way she climbs by sho- shoving her hand through the wall reinforces her sheer strength. It also looks like the trailer shows a bit more of the fight scene that I think is basically going to be Wonder Woman's version of Batman's Martha Rescue from Batman vs. Superman. And the Imagine Dragons song at the end works really well too. I think somebody at DC is a big fan of them because they were on the Suicide Squad soundtrack as well. Finally, there's a short shot of Wonder Woman towards the end that has me very convinced that she is going to fly in the movie. We've seen another shot before in which she looked like she might be flying, but the one in this trailer really makes me think she's going to. Anyway, we are now so close to the movie premiere, and I can't wait. I finally got my ticket, and I'm going to a late Thursday night preview showing. Yeah, that's awesome, Jordan. I still got to get my tickets, too. I'm probably going to do that today. <laughs> it's only, like I said earlier, two weeks away. But I did see that final Wonder Woman trailer, and I wasn't expecting it, kind of like you, Jordan, and almost was a little concerned, like, uh, should they be releasing the fourth trailer? Are they going to show too much? But at the same time, I'm not going to kid myself and try to not watch it. I, I just watched it right away, and I completely agree. Probably the best trailer yet for it. Wonder Woman was looking so incredible, as we were talking about earlier. It's just, this trailer, I, I liked it how they showed more cool stuff. One of my favorite parts of it was, like you mentioned in your email, Jordan, where we see her climbing up that wall, trying to get to, you know, the, the weapons and armor that we know she's going to use later on in the film in her classic look. I thought that was really cool. And they just showed more, a little more of stuff we've seen before, but just more of it, certain action sequences, which, again, looked amazing. But I'm really glad they didn't tip their hand and show Ares. That's where I thought this trailer did a really great job. It didn't do what Batman v Superman did in their third one and show Doomsday right away, kind of show, like, it felt like they had to. Like, see, we got Doomsday in here. The three heroes are going to fight Doomsday. Uh, but this one, Ares, he's probably only going to be, you know, in his uh, godlike form at the end of the movie. But they still didn't show him. I thought they were since it was the fourth trailer to get people really excited to see Wonder Woman fight uh, a god. But they held back and there's something we're going to experience while we're actually sitting in the theater. And I can't wait to, to see that actually play out when we're seeing it for the first time. So, yeah, the trailer was really, really cool. I don't know, did you see it, Dane, or are you uh, keeping away from <laughs> any more footage from it since we're so close? No, I did see it, and um, the Tim. <laughs> it looked good. It looked good. It didn't deter you anyway. <laughs> I trust. No, no, and I have to say, Gal Gadot is going to be a great Wonder Woman. Yeah, Re- regardless how this movie turns out, that's one thing everyone's I, praising in the Twitter reactions too is that she just nails yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, she. She's going to be a great Wonder Woman, um, and she she is. Uh, hopefully, this this movie is going to be good, and I I want it to be good. So, yep, this more positivity towards it. Like we got this trailer uh, last week, and then you know the Twitter reactions came out. I'm sure more screenings are going to be happening soon. So, 
things are yeah. looking up for Wonder Woman, and we just gotta get to that final step where we actually see the movie, so we you know can be know for sure. But Jordan's second question is, what are your guys' thoughts on the upcoming Doomsday Clock miniseries? Well, Jordan, you probably heard what we thought of it in our news and discussion topics, so let's hear what you think. He goes, I'm super pumped. It sounds like it's going to sort of pick up where the button leaves off. The names attached to it are one of the things that excite me most. In terms of the plot, it sounds like it's going to be focused on Dr. Manhattan and Superman, and that seems amazing to me. The way Johns describes the difference between the two characters in his interview uh, with Aaron Sagers of Sci-Fi Wire fascinates me. I never really thought about it this way. Dr. Manhattan is a human who lost his humanity, and Superman is an alien who embodies humanity more than most humans. It'll be interesting to see what Johns does with that idea. I also am very intrigued about what John said about Batman's possible status in Doomsday Clock, given the events of the button. In the interview, Johns also mentions that Batman Earth-1 Volume 3 is almost done. I don't know about you guys, but I loved what he and Gary Frank have done in the Batman Earth-1 books, especially the second one, and I'm really eagerly anticipating the next one. Anyways, between Doomsday Clock and Dark Knight's Metal, it appears we have two huge things to look forward to coming, coming up in the comics. Yeah, regarding Batman Earth 1, I'm right with you, Jordan. The first two volumes have been really, really good. So I kind of almost forgot that he was... I knew he was doing it, but there's so much other big comic stuff going on. The Earth 1 series kind of went in the back burner. So I'm glad that he's almost done with it, and I can't wait to read it when it comes out. So that should just be another comic book story to look forward to. Like you said, it's going to be a pretty good year for DC Comics if everything pans out as far as you know living up to the excitement we have for it right now. But Jordan ends his email saying, Finally, as as of my writing of this, tomorrow, May 18th, is Wonder Woman Fan Day. According to Gal Gadot, there is going to be a live Q&As and some other surprises. By the time you record this, the day will have passed and we'll know what those surprises are. So I'll just say that I hope you guys both had a wonderful, (laughs) I couldn't help it, (laughs) Wonder Woman Fan Day. We are actually basically getting two Wonder Woman holidays right now, since there's also Wonder Woman Day on June 3rd, just after the premiere of the live-action movie. Best, Jordan. I think that was the day they allowed the... And like you said, they had a Q&A with Patty Jenkins, and then that's when the reactions from the press screenings came out. So, yeah, yeah so it was a positive Wonder Woman day, I will say, and hopefully it'll be even better on June 3rd when the movie comes out. Didn't uh, Gal Gadot end up... Uh, I think she hurt her back or something? Yeah, she was... And she couldn't... She sent the video out yeah. from, just from laying her in her bed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she couldn't participate in the uh, Q&A. Or something. Yeah, I just had to suck for her, but I'm sure she has to, you know, rest up for all the press junkets and the premieres that are going to be happening this coming week. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> best she rest up for that. But thanks, Jordan, for your email, and it's always great to hear your thoughts on the happenings in the world of DC and Batman over the last two weeks. So, we'll look forward to your next one on our next episode. Yeah. So with that, um, I guess we can get into our comic book reviews, yep. right? Alright, so uh, for this episode we have Detective Comics number 956, Batman number 23, All-Star Batman 10, uh, Batman TMNT Adventures number 6, and The Flash number 22. Got a lot of comics Um, this episode. (laughs) Yeah, we do. And our rating scale um, for this episode is going to be... um, See, I don't know if you have one, Dane, but I, I think I might have one. Oh, okay. I was thinking what, what is it? Uh, free comic book days that Tim and Dane just don't attend anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That's going to be good one. All right. So uh, wherever you want to start, Tim. All right. I'll go with Detective Comics number 956. 
this one's wrapping up the League of Shadows arc, which, you know, as I said before, has been a little hit and miss. We had some great ones and some not-so-great ones throughout the course of this arc. But I thought it ended in a satisfying way, because as the last issue ended with, you know, Cassandra Kane confronting Shiva with the rest of the Bat team right behind her, ready to fight her, and that's pretty much where this issue kicks off. We get some pretty cool action panels with Shiva just taking on everyone with this team, Batman, Batwing, Batwoman, Azrael, Orphan, and she takes out Batwoman right away because she knows she, uh, she was stabbed and she has a really bad injury, so she takes her out of the equation pretty quickly. And Clayface has to kind of escape with her. And it's mainly Batman and Orphan who are fighting her because Azrael and Batwing uh, go to take out uh, the bomb she planted underground in Gotham to try to disable that. And of course, those are the two characters we want to see Shiva fight the most anyway, <laughs> especially with Orphan. I thought it delivered on getting a, giving us a satisfying conclusion between this encounter. Uh, Orphan and their dialogue, you know, Shiva just kind of, again, mocking her, telling her, you know, you're just a broken weapon, you're nothing more but Cassandra is trying to prove to her that she is. And one of my favorite dialogues that she had was that, you know, she goes, I can see death, I choose life, but you, you think the best hits are kills, but actually the best hits are the ones that hurts. And she just lays a kick into <laughs> Shiva's gut, you know, kind of proving, you know, these will hurt you more in the long run, especially in this situation coming from her daughter. And she was all yelling at Batman, like, look how you corrupted her, like, look what you've turned her into, and, you know... And Orphan's not having any of it. She just I just love how she took her down. You know, just kind of that extra adrenaline or what, whatever you want to call it, you know, this fight against her mother for someone. What she's done, being gone for so long, all the emotions are coming up with Orphan in here, and she's putting it to good use and finally besting her mother, Shiva, in battle, which was, I think, a really cool moment. Uh, another thing that happened in here was that, you know, Clayface, like I said, is trying to escape with Batwoman, who's injured. And I liked how it worked where he just takes that woman's body and just incorporates her into his mud body because he has to shapeshift both of them in order to make their escape to, as disguised as League of uh, Shadow members. So that was a pretty cool aspect of Clayface's power, just, you know, being able to shapeshift not only him, but Batwoman uh, who was inside uh, his body at that time. And uh, Kate's father sees her in the security cameras. You know, him and the colony are about to infiltrate the League of the Shadows in there and just wipe them all out. But he uh, orders to halt all that once he sees once he sees that Kate is still alive. So that's why we don't see the colony get involved too much in this issue. But then it ends with Rachel Ghoul making an appearance. Uh, Batman and uh, Orphan are kind of asking her, "Why are you doing this?" and all that. But uh, we see one flashback moment with Shiva and Rachel Ghoul, where she's kind of making it known that she's going to leave him and do things her own way because of what his plans are. But uh, she tells Orphan that she wouldn't understand. But before she could say any more, Race Hoggle shoots her, mortally wounding her. And uh, he kind of has to make a deal with Batman in order to stop that bomb from going off. But he goes, you know, if you let me take Shiva's body, I'll tell you how to disable the bomb. And Batman agrees to that. And But before he does, Shiva calls Orphan to her and tells her something. We don't know what. It's one of those things where it's going to be a mystery that will probably get revealed later down the line. I just wonder if it's going to affect Orphan's, you know, frame of mind with her uh, situation amongst this bat team. I hope it doesn't, you know, make her, you know, want to leave the team or doubt the team, anything like that. I just hope it's something, you know, that helps her understand her mother a little better. And she, all we see Shiva say is, like, do you understand? Orphan says yes, and that's it. But at the end, we get a little epilogue moment where, you know, uh, 
uh, Kate is telling Bruce that Cassandra's handling this pretty well. She's you know about to go to a ballet with uh, uh, Christine, the dancer friend she met. But then uh, Bruce kind of teases what's going to happen probably in future detective issues where Rach told him, you know, we did stuff with his memories and that wasn't my favorite part of uh, <laughs> this whole story arc. But Bruce suspects there's more, a bigger war to come with the colony, with the League of Shadows, what Rache is planning. And he goes, he decides, I know where to start to confront this. He goes, years during my training, I went down a dark road. I tried to become part of a world in which I didn't belong to and tried to use a weapon which I never should have touched. It's magic. That's what Rache used against me, and now I'm going to use it against him. So setting the stage up for probably a future confrontation with Rache al Ghul, but uh, this is where the League of Shadows stories end. So... I thought it was a satisfying conclusion between the orphan and Lady Shiva mother-daughter relationship. I couldn't say it was the best arc of this Rebirth Detective run, but it was still solid overall. So I'm going to give this issue three and a half out of uh, five uh, com- free comic book days that Tim and Dane just don't attend anymore. And next up is Batman number 23. And this one's kind of a nice change of pace. Just a single uh, one-off story between Batman and Swamp Thing. The button arc concludes in the Flash 22 so Batman just had a, a one issue story which was kind of nice just one self-contained story that you just only have to read once so this one it starts off with uh, someone singing a song it's kind of an older man and we'd see him get shot in the face twice and then we see Batman and Gordon uh, looking at the body in the apartment and you know trying to ID him there's really he says he doesn't really have much family no one really knew him but then Swamp Thing pays a visit to look at the body. <laughs> it's a great moment where Gordon's kind of surprised, like surprised, shocked to see Swamp Thing and Batman just as calm, as cool as ever. And Gordon just says, oh, I'm guessing you two know each other already. I should have figured. <laughs> and so when it gets revealed, Swamp Thing tells Batman that the person who was killed was actually his father. So um, he's going to ask for Batman's help to try to find the killer. We get some funny moments too. Well, favorite panel shot is just Bruce and Swamp Thing having a cup of tea in the Wayne Manor living room. You got Alfred cleaning up after you know the leaves and dirt that Swamp Thing's messing in the living room. You got Ace sitting on the floor uh, looking at Swamp Thing kind of curiously. Just a great image that I liked. So they set off to try to solve this mystery of who the, the killer was, Batman uh, and Swamp Thing team up to take out Kite Man to try to get more information out of all villains, which was kind of funny to see him again. And then uh, just little things where Batman and Swamp Thing in the car, Swamp Thing trying to squeeze himself in there. It's just like, you would ask him, why do you need a car? He goes, I don't know, like, why do you even need a body if you're just all about the plant life? So just, they had some funny interactions that I wasn't expecting. But they do come face-to-face uh, with the killer. And Swamp Thing, it, it turns out, this is the big reveal about it at the end, where, you know, Batman's just going to bring him to justice. But Swamp Thing, he was just out there pretty much for vengeance. And he Batman tries to stop Swamp Thing from killing this guy. He just starts yelling at him and just gets really mad once he finally delivers the killing blow. And Batman just like says, you know, I helped you, I gave him to you, but yet you just used me, like you were gonna kill him all along. And Swamp Thing's like, yeah, he killed my father, and now, he, now he's dead. But then, and then he, Bat, because Swamp Thing was kind of telling him, you know, how almost like that dust to dust analogy, but a little different since him being involved in plant life, where you know death wasn't really the end. Batman's like, you know, what happened to all that stuff? Like to the, he even says, like, what happened to the light descending and that whole thing about. Uh, the weed and the birth and like the change of, er- of what everything that you believe in what happened to that and, like where'd all that go like you just use me 
And then Swamp Thing, he tries to explain himself to Bruce, but he's not selling it well. And Bruce isn't having it, you know. And then he just goes, Swamp Thing says, I just, I don't, you know what, I don't need to be here. And he just starts uh, breaking away and just uh, leaving little piles of leaves and making his escape. And Batman's like, you know what, this isn't over, you know. You like you're just a coward from leaving. Like, why? How could you do this? So Batman's pretty frustrated with Swamp Thing. So that's where the story ends. And looks like the next issue is going to be about the aftermath of Batman's fight with Bane, which should be exciting. So, uh, just like I said, a good self-contained story. I like the ending when Batman, you know, just kind of snaps that Swamp Thing wants to kill that guy, and it's for using him. I thought that was a really good moment. So, overall, a solid issue. I'm going to give it. Uh, Three and a half out of uh, five uh, free comic book days that Tim and Dane just don't attend to anymore. It's kind of rare to get a story like this, so I thought it was a nice change of pace. Next up is going to be All-Star Batman number 10, which is starting up a brand new arc from Scott Snyder. I gotta say, I know I, I didn't review the final part to this last arc uh, since I didn't get the comic in time. I gotta say, that arc ended kind of lackluster for me. This whole confrontation with Rachel Ghoul and him being the mastermind behind that story with all those other villains. Uh, that was a little anticlimactic. So uh, This one, though... I was excited about this arc because it's titled The First Ally. It's mainly going to delve into a little bit of Alfred's history, and this first part delivered. <laughs> I really liked it. Uh, one of the best issues since All-Star launched, I think. So uh, I'm all for getting more into Alfred's history, but the story that's being laid out here is really cool. So it begins with a flashback sequence uh, with a, someone in a, in a ski mask chasing or being chased by Bobbies in London on the rooftops. And they try to... I gotta say this, though, right away. It was just... I'll just spoil the ending, where they were trying to make it a surprise that this person on the rooftop was actually Alfred. They tried to make you think that it was Bruce, but I kind of knew right away reading that this was probably Alfred, just knowing that they were in London. And a little bit of the way he was talking, I kind of figured this would be Alfred. But still, knowing that didn't ruin the effect of the good story that this comic was. What I really loved about it, first off, was just the monologue that Alfred has at the beginning and really throughout the whole issue where he's describing uh, how Bruce is and I just love how we're just calling him his son you know he's the one who raised him and he really is his father and I just like how he says you know refers to Bruce as my son my son has a kind of flair from the theatric and there was a moment later on where Bruce is in danger where he goes you know a parent it's impossible for a parent not to worry about when your son's in danger and when you think you're going to lose him that feeling never goes away and I had that all the time with Bruce as Batman you just, you just never get used to it so some great stuff with Alfred's monologue trying to you know just establish the great father-son relationship that uh, they have but the issue begins actually after that flashback with Alfred and Batman in the Batmobile chasing Hush in a helicopter over a baseball stadium. And we got some uh, cool visuals with the national anthem singing at a baseball field before the game starts, but yet the Batmobile is coming <laughs> right right over the field to interrupt it to try to get Hush. So and the crowd goes crazy once they see Batman shoot out of the Batmobile to take out Hush in the helicopter. It was a pretty cool sequence and great art by uh, Raphael Albuquerque, who's uh, back working with Scott Snyder on the story, which is really cool. So the art was great in this one, too. So they take they take Hush out. Uh, they find out that, um, you know, he was trying to smuggle in this new weapon uh, that's being brought in because of the Genesis engine. And But the thing is, the people who are smuggling this in, they don't want any villains from Gotham, you know, being to bid on this weapon, knowing how crazy they all are. So Hush, you know, having the face of Bruce Wayne made it look like Bruce was going to bid for this engine. So that gives Bruce's in to try to, you know, 
go to the dealer and get that weapon for himself so it doesn't fall into the wrong hands. And I like how that sequence plays out, reminding me a little bit of a James Bond story. You see Bruce and Alfred going into Miami in some casual clothes on a boat. Um, they go to this old, you know, pi- pirate treasure ground, you know, that was uh, never really you know, has been finished during the pirate era, but now it's being run by uh, this person who's actually a descendant of actual uh, pirates, but it's used, being used for criminal organizations. So that was a little nice touch there. And then uh, Bruce trying to uh, go in casually, make it look like, you know, he's going to b- deliver this rare painting, which is going to be, you know, his exchange for that new Genesis weapon. And But it turns out uh, the person who was, you know, had the weapon figures out this is still Tommy Elliott. He knows uh, too well that, you know, that Bruce Wayne wouldn't actually do this, but yet Bruce is actually there and he tries to stop him. But things go sour. His goons start firing on him, and that's where I said Alfred has that moment that reflects where you never get used to seeing your son almost about to encounter death. But of course, Bruce uses the painting to his advantage. I think it had some like iron padding on there, or it was made on some iron, which was able to shield him from the bullets. He's able to take out those uh, thugs pretty quickly. But then he goes to the person in charge who had this Genesis engine, and he discovers that he's been killed already. And pretty brutally i might add where his heart was taken out but it was like it was used it was tortured with it as he could see his heart his chest was cut open and being held by these you know these pillars or not pillars but these iron rods these small iron rods that had the hole in his chest open and the person was torturing his heart like squeezing his heart torturing him as they see it this is a brutal way but yet the symbol these rods made on the person's chest was a symbol we saw on the building that the young alfred was uh jumping on so Alfred is shocked when he sees that, and this is where we get the reveal that uh, the person the police were chasing, who they ended up catching, by the way, was actually Alfred, once a, a young Alfred as a young man. It was a funny moment, too, where Alfred makes his escape, but showing his inexperience. He like jumped off a building onto a moving car, but while he was kind of waving off the police and you know mocking them, trying to say, yeah, I got away, he didn't see the traffic light behind him and it knocked him out <laughs> that's how the police caught him so that's the reveal where alfred was the one in that flashback and that uh whoever killed uh, this uh crime lord here in in miami whoever stole or wants the genesis weapon is somehow tied to alfred's past as he uh remembers that symbol so just a, a good overall different batman story like i said had a little james bond feel to it had a great action sequence between batman and hush in the beginning and then alfred's monologue is what really made this issue for me telling you know how he feels about bruce as a son so good stuff all around can't wait to see more of alfred's history in the flashback so i'm going to give this one four out of five free comic book days that dane and tim just don't attend anymore and then this one's going to be a little sad review dane the batman team and t adventures final issue uh-oh. And remember how I said in issue five where, oh, it looks like this is going to be an ongoing issue because that arc ended, but now we're going to jump a few years ahead into the new Batman Adventures and get a new arc. Sadly, I was mistaken because <laughs> what this issue is, it's just an epilogue to that first story arc. So when I saw it, I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> a little bummed out. But uh, this issue, it was, it was just, like I said, the, on the other issues, a fun, solid story between Batman and the TMNT characters in the animated universe. This one takes place, you know, like I said, a few years after the last story, where it's in the new Batman adventures. You've got Tim Drake as Robin and Dick as Nightwing. And the premise of this story is is that 
when the Mad Hatter was using the crank technology to open the portals, he kind of woke the crank up who were dormant for a bit. And now, knowing that the Mad Hatter was from Gotham, they were able to track it, and now they're invading Gotham. And I like how it starts with Bruce and Tim about to watch an old Grey Ghost movie, it's almost as it was a sci-fi B-movie involving aliens, and Tim is just like, oh, I'm going to have to sit through this. It's just so, like, you know, preposterous, these type of stories. But then that's where the Krang invasion starts, and he just sees, sees all these aliens <laughs> attacking Gotham City. So him and Batgirl, the Batman, Batgirl, and Robin are here to take out the Krang robots, and they know, you know, this is familiar. The portals are for what they uh, dealt with with the Batman villains being used by the Mad Hatter. And there's this one panel I really liked where... Uh, uh, Batman, he knows this, they're about to face off the crane, but then this portal's about to open, and he gets this smirk on his face, like he knows it's the turtles that are coming to help him. Like just this is one of those cool little moments that, again, with this series, you never expected Batman and the turtles to team up, but yet here we are, and now they kind of have this mutual. Batman has this mutual respect for him when they've been gone for a while and they're making their way back. It's just pretty cool to see as a Batman and Turtles fan. So more cool action panels with Batman and the turtles taking out the crane robots. But then uh, Michelangelo has some funny dialogue with uh, Tim as Robin, uh, <laughs> saying like, "Hey, did it? Did you shrink since the last time I saw you?" <laughs> and Raph's, I think he's an entirely new kid. That he's all uh, c- comparing him to, you know, like a baby Robin or little Robin, <laughs> and calling Batman his dad. It is, you know, being annoying already to Tim Drake. So funny stuff between Michelangelo and uh, Tim as he's a new Robin now. But then the thing I was excited about the most, especially that was teasing uh, the last part. Of TMNT issue five, where uh, Matt or the Scarecrow was, you know, he sensed the Krang were coming. He experienced something we didn't know what, and he figured he had to do something about it. And we were getting teased of his awesome new Batman adventure Scarecrow design. And this is probably my one nitpick with this issue. Uh, we don't see that at all. He's locked up in Arkham, but yet we get a dream sequence where you see him going through the portals and countering the Krang in his old Scarecrow outfit, but we never see the new classic Batman Adventures outfit that I just absolutely love, so I was disappointed we didn't see it, especially after it was teased in issue 5, so that was probably my biggest disappointment with this issue was not, them not, you know making good on their tease that they had for the Scarecrow's new costume but uh, it turns out, like I said, he was preparing for their invasion, so what he did, he uh, filled the blimps from the Gotham Police Department, filled with his fear gas because Batman and Leonardo figured, you know, Scarecrow's gas pretty effective on us the last time. Let's use it to take out the Krang. That's why they visit him in Arkham. So once they go there, Scarecrow tells them his plan. They go to ignite the gas in the blimps to get the Krang out. But of course, one doesn't work. So Raph has to do it manually. He takes it out with his size, but then he gets dosed with the fear toxin again as well. But the plan ends up working. The Krang get intoxicated with the fear toxin. And then they, there was a cool panel where how in the previous issues we saw Batman get a dose of the fear toxin and see all the classic Batman animated series villains. Uh, this time we see all the tr- villains from the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles series currently going on, which was pretty cool to see. So it was a nice parallel to that. I thought was kind of neat. But like I said, that works. The Krang escape. And there is one thing that made me hopeful. Maybe they're teasing something in the future. We know Raph was still had the fear toxin on him, so maybe this is what he saw, but I didn't get that vibe. They probably want you to think that, but that's probably not what's happening. He looks over his shoulder as a portal opens, and he sees a silhouette of Shredder, but then he turns away, and it's not there anymore. And they just ask him, are you okay? He's like, yeah, it's still just having the effects of the gas, but I think it's teasing that Shredder made his way to Gotham City, and if we get a, 
another story with Shredder invading Gotham and have that Batman Shredder team up or not team up but fight I've been dying for just them with their skills no special suits or anything that would be a great way to bring back this crossover so uh, again just a nice fun epilogue story a little disappointed that the Scarecrow uh, didn't get his due costume like it was teased in the last issue so I'm going to give this one 3 out of 5 times that or 3 out of 5 comic book days that Tim and Dane just don't attend to anymore but so sad to see this crossover finally end. It's been great having two separate stories with the Turtles and Batman. Hopefully it just won't be the last. I'd, I'd say that was your favorite book, Tim. Yeah. Um, I will say the yeah. first one was better. That was just... Uh, it was amazing. The one that James Tinian did. But this one was just... It was. I would say this one has more fun and more geek-out moments. There's like Batman the Animated Series references that... <laughs> seeing Michelangelo reenact the whole opening sequence was pretty awesome. So this yeah. had some more, I guess, cool Easter eggs and, like I guess, geek out moments to it. Oh, I see. But I loved both. And hopefully, like I said, hopefully this isn't <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> but now for the big one, the conclusion of the Button story arc in the Flash 22. Um, it picks up right where the last one left off, where Reverse Flash encountered Batman and Barry during the time string on the Cosmic Treadmill. They're trying to stop him from reaching his point of destination, which we know is Dr. Manhattan's going to be the death of Eobarthon, but he's not listening to what Bat- Batman and Flash have to say. He's going to power on. He wants to change history again. I mean, he was, he just wants to taunt Barry more and more. Not bad enough he killed his mother, but then he goes, you know, if I could you know, have like godlike par- powers, you know, I could uh, do even more stuff to torture you, Barry. Like, how about on the night your mother dies... I'll be a social worker or a lifelong neighbor or a friend, and I'll take you in. I'll raise you as my own. I'll make you my son. Like, that's his goal, just to torment Barry. And this is how messed up Thawne is <laughs> with how much he hates Barry. But um, we see what happens to him once he reaches his destination. It's just you see a bunch of floating rocks in, in space. He's on one of those rocks, and then he's, like, saying, you know, I'm not like anyone else, you know, my powers and my existing is, like, a constancy of possibilities. Show yourself. But then once he sees this big blue light, he gets so freaked out. He goes, like, he's speechless. He just goes, my God, wait, I don't, I didn't know. Like, don't hurt me. Like, I don't want to die. And then we just see the big blue energy just take over him, and then his skeleton body that we see show up in the Batcave uh, in the first part. So... Now we know just what exactly happened to Eobarthon once he uh, left with the coin, which was cool. But then Bruce and Barry in the time stream, there's this faint voice that is calling out to Barry, just saying, Barry, Barry, and Bruce is all like, can't you hear it? And he goes, like, you got flashes saying, you can't pay attention to any of this. It could be something from a different time or an era that we didn't know existed. You just got to ignore it. But Batman is saying, like, there's no way out of here. We got no other choice. And then the voice just says, say my name, Jay. And then Barry says it in the question, like, Jay? Then a cool splash page of Jay Garrick just coming out of what looks like the Speed Force. He just says, I'm free. And he gets uh, Barry and Batman out of the time stream and back into the, the Batcave where it all started right when Eobard died. So uh, Flash doesn't remember Jay, though. This is part of that missing history that we you know has been taken away since uh, we got that Rebirth special. And Jay's just telling him, you know, you got to remember, Lee, like you did uh, Wally earlier, but Barry just tells him kind of what I just said, where you know there's things that I forgot, people I used to know that I don't know anymore, and he just doesn't recognize them. And Jay just tells him they took everything from me, and I don't know why. Like you have to remember me, and then but it's too late. He just kind of fades away 
it looks like he's going to be faded away, but then that blue energy again, which looks like is from Dr. Manhattan just, you know, consumes him and you just see a puff of smoke. You don't see a skeleton body like Iobarthon. So I don't think Jay is dead, but I'm not necessarily sure what took him. Was it the speed force being trapped in there or was Dr. Manhattan involved? Because there was that blue light that looks like was a stain that took out Iobar. So, well, I'm sure we'll see Jay again, but we'll just have to wait to see what exactly happened to him. So Bruce and Barry, one of my favorite point, moments in this issue is at the end here where Bruce and Barry are at Thomas and Martha's graves. And just I just love the relationship that Bruce and Barry had here, just showing how much they're alike, but yet kind of different. Bruce tells them, like, you know, you're the only other person who suffered like I did, but also had a glimpse of what the alternative could be with it. It says, Bruce tells him, it's cruel that we had to see that. And Barry goes, I think of it as a gift. <laughs> a gift. Like I said, just showing how different, similar they are, but different in how they look at things and their perspective. So Barry is ready to wrap this up. Kind of, you know, he thinks that it was all because of Thon, because of him meddling with things. This is why we had to experience this. But Bruce is saying, you know, there's something more to this. All this stuff that we experience cannot be a coincidence. And you might think it's closed, but we both, you might actually like consider it closed, but we both know, you know, it's far from over. And this is going to come back, and we're going to have to deal with this at a later time. So um, that's how Barry and Bruce part ways. But another great moment in this issue was those words that Thomas Wayne told Bruce, what I said on our last episode, that, you know, it's going to you know, be a defining moment probably for Batman, something that's going to affect him in a big way. And we just see these panels laid out where Bruce looking outside his window in Wayne Manor and then just repeating the words that Thomas told him. Don't be Batman. Find happiness. You don't have to do this for me or for your mother. Let Batman die with me. And as we see those words laid out in the panels, the bat signal goes out and Bruce just looks at it or actually kind of look, looks away from it. Then Alfred comes in and says, sir, are you going to answer that? Bruce doesn't say anything. And then he just like puts his head down. And that's the last we see of Batman in this story. So, again, it's having that effect that I was hoping for. Bruce questioning this. Like, like I said in our last episode, like Jordan said in this email, if there's anyone that's going to make Bruce consider not be Batman seriously, it's going to be his mother or his father. And that's what's happening in this issue. I love Bruce having to contemplate that. And then a transition to, you know, empty space in the asteroid field where uh, Eobard Thawden was and where he confronted Dr. Manhattan. And we see the button is just lying on one of those rocks. And we see a blue hand <laughs> pick up that button. And then we get the monologue from one of Dr. Manhattan's lines from Watchmen, where he goes, everything is preordained, even my responses. We're all puppets, Laurie. I'm just a puppet who can see the strings. You know, just laying the foundation that, you know, all the stuff that's happening with Barry and Bruce in this crossover is all part of his doing. And then even in that issue or that interview that Jeff Johns had about the Doomsday Clock, um, they talked about what happened in this moment with Bruce not answering the bat signal. And Jeff Johns even says, you know, that was Manhattan's doing. That he wanted to take Batman out of the equation for what he had planned. So kind of answering the question of the whole point of Bruce and Barry going to that Flashpoint world and for it still existing was all part of Dr. Manhattan's plan to get Bruce to encounter his father, have him say that, and probably question being Batman. So all cool stuff that's tying up uh, and setting the stage for Doomsday Clock pretty nicely. And it just ends with a bunch of different panels on the last two pages. Or not different panels, but a lot of panels of the button just flying in empty space with the blood stains on it. But then we see Superman's shield on the last page of the issue, and it's kind of cracked. And again, setting the stage for what's going to be a story focused on Manhattan and Superman that I just cannot wait to see play out. So, 
yeah, I thought this was a great conclusion to the button crossover between Batman and Flash. I said when Rebirth, uh, the special one-side issue came out, I wanted a story between Batman and Flash teaming up, and the button story delivered on that. I absolutely loved it. All the issues were great. Two of them, I think, were all-timers. I believe I gave two issues out of this arc, five out of five, so which is pretty great. But for this issue, um, not quite on the level as the last one with uh, Bruce and Thomas Wayne and Flashpoint, but this was still a great conclusion, I thought. I'm going to give this one four and a half uh, free comic book days that Tim and Dane just don't intend anymore. Bring on Doomsday Clock. I am all more than ready for it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so with that, Tim, I guess we have to say uh, go over to the BatmanUniverse.net. One more time. Dude, yes, say Batman it. Universe. <laughs> yeah, say it again. Uh, uh, Facebook.com slash BatmanUniverse or on Twitter. Twitter handles at BatmanUniverse. And you can follow the show on Twitter. The show's Twitter handles at BatFans20. Oh. <laughs> and the old one. <laughs> at BatFans Podcast. Uh, Tim's Twitter handles at TimG311. I will say that this well, time. Well, thank you, Dave. <laughs> And my Twitter handle is at Dane Says Bananas. So, oh, also, if you want to email the show, the show's email is uh, badfanswithoutpants at gmail.com. So with that, like we say at the end of every single episode, Tim. Each and every one of you put all of our bad ones. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll see you guys next time. Sunday